Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week I'm happy to bring you my conversation with Drew Oding, founding partner of 8VC. Drew and the team came together originally in 2012 and officially launched 8VC in 2015 to focus on early stage investments across many sectors, and they currently have over $2 billion in assets under management. On this week's show, we had a fun conversation that covered things like their spin out from Formation 8 to 8VC their investment decision-making culture, and what they do specifically to acquire and retain key talent. Now, without further ado, let's get into this week's show to hear all of that and much more. Today's episode is sponsored by Brex. Brex offers smart financial solutions to help startups scale, including a high-limit corporate credit card and a no-fee business account. Brex understands what founders need and has innovated on traditional financial systems to help you manage your finances more easily, so you can focus on building, not banking. You can rely on Brex for everything you need to scale fast with live support at the ready, a great mobile app, and zero paperwork. Open a corporate card and business account and make your first deposit in minutes at brex.com forward slash venture. Even better, you'll earn uncapped points on every purchase from day one, redeemable for your first choice of rewards, including crypto. Get started at brex.com forward slash venture. If you're investing in private companies, then you need to know about Sidecar, the latest player in venture tech. Sidecar is on a mission to enable anybody to be a capital allocator by creating tools built specifically for today's venture investor. Their powerful software removes the headache of organizing private investments so that you can focus on making deals, not spreadsheets. Whether you're syndicating your first or 50th deal, Sidecar X is your silent operating partner, handling all back office functions in a single place. Sidecar always has your back, so that you never have to worry about chasing subdocs, lost wires, or late K1s. In the spring of 2021, as private market activity continued, we launched Allocate, and Sidecar was an instrumental part of our success. Their products supported our fundraise in a way that delighted my investors and kept me apprised in real time throughout their process. Their platform allowed Allocate to close our seed round efficiently and effectively, so we could get back to our mission of increasing access to top private alternatives. Visit sidecar.io to learn more and join the waitlist for their limited beta. Drew, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. On these episodes, I also like to go back to the origin story. And, you know, I look at your background and it was fairly eclectic. You worked as an entrepreneur, you worked under Joe. You know, when he, I believe he was doing Adapar, uh, you worked with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation with Cascade. You worked in Mongolia for a while. When you look at the cornucopia of all those experiences, how did you decide that investing and doing early stage investing was the right thing for you? You know, I grew up in Iowa. I grew up in a place, Iowa City, where the University of Iowa is. My parents uh, were professors and uh, physicians there. And, and for whatever reason, I was obsessed with investing from a very young age. Because of that, I read a bunch of books about investing. And I would, you know, when I was a, a kid, I sort of thought, investing was like picking penny stocks and doing stuff like that. So I went into to college, I went to Claremont McKenna, um, because the only other thing I really was obsessed with other than investing when I was growing up was golf. And so I got a letter from their coach and I ended up, I ended up going there. And Claremont McKenna was an amazing place because it was, it was very investing focused. We're very fortunate at Claremont to have a number of very prominent alumni who built really various different parts of, of what is today the private equity industry. Um, you know, notably Mr. Kravis and Roberts who built 
you know, KKR, Mr. Day, who built Trust Company of the West, and then, you know, a bunch of other folks who built hedge funds, private equity funds, venture funds. And so I was surrounded by all this. And, um, and I, and I, I sort of just realized I didn't really know what investing was. It wasn't just about penny stocks and there was all this other stuff. And I had, um, I was really lucky to have a scholarship through a group called Cascade, which is also known as the Bill and Melinda Gates family office. And so, uh, the CIO there, Michael Larson was a Claremont McKenna alumni and he would give scholarships. And so, uh, to, to students who studied math and physics and other stuff who wanted to learn about asset management. And so I was really lucky. I got to work for them and an intern for them worked for our endowment. And then I had a friend who's now in venture as well, Miles Bird. Um, and he was like, we should go to Mongolia and work for this, this American guy over there named Lee Cashel. And I was like, that's crazy. Why would we do that? I want to be an investor. And he was like, well, this is, this is, it's like, it is investing. You should, we should do it. So we went over there and did it. And, um, you know, I'm really thankful for him on that because it was this crazy experience. It was super entrepreneurial. And so it was investing in that, like we, you know, Lee would buy businesses and he would sell businesses and, you know, but he was also an operator and it was constantly hair on fire, crazy stuff happening. We were talking about, you know, mineral rights and cement companies and real estate projects in, in Mongolia during this crazy boom and bust cycle that they were having. And so, um, that gave me this whole new perspective. And then I, and then I interned at, at the next summer for Cascade and that was very fundamental Buffett-esque style investing, but also we got to see all these incredible tech companies because of the you know, because of the DNA of that firm um, coming from Bill Gates. And so I had this weird, weird sort of thing. And I was like, oh, I want to do like both of these things. And so I was like, well, I need to go to Silicon Valley is the only way to do it. The only job I could get in, you know, was, was in investment banking because, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how to code really. That was always the worst part of my math major was coding. And so anyway, I ended up there and I just started, you know, realizing, first I realized I was a terrible investment banking analyst and I and I'm really thankful that they gave me a job. But the second thing was I I just knew I needed to be closer to the actual companies and I started learning more about venture capital. So it was this real evolution from thinking investing was penny stocks to realizing it was so much more. And then I, you know, the culmination of that was when I was just incredibly fortunate to get introduced um by a friend of mine from Claremont. I got introduced by Cliff Paulus to Joe Lonsdale, my long-term business partner, who was the CEO of Adapar at the time, which was the second company he started after he started Palantir. And um, he wanted to build a venture capital business in addition to starting companies. And he wanted a chief of staff. And I said, that sounds perfect. And so that's when we started working together. And so that was around, what, 2011, 2012? 2012, yeah. When Formation 8 Fund 1 got off the ground. And, and I do remember that it was one of the largest first-time funds for a VC fund. I think it was $448 million for that first fund. But when I always think about running a firm, it's in many ways like running a startup. And in today's world, a lot of venture funds are run by startup you know, operators, somebody that worked at a company. In Joe's case, he was at Palantir, he was at Adapar. When you guys were looking at raising that first fund, Tell us a little bit about the blueprint of the type of firm that you wanted to build, because I always think about things like ethos, culture, investment thesis, and given Joe's background and your background, which again, as I mentioned before, and you went through, had a lot of different parts. How did you guys think about it in the early days? Yeah, well, I mean, I think first off, I was a, you know, a very, very small part of the, uh, of, of Formation 8 
that first fund, right? I mean, I had really no experience. Um, and there were, you know, we had two other founding, founding GPs at Formation 8, um, Brian Kuh and Jim Kim. And, you know, Jim had been in venture for a long time and Brian's uh, had been in angel investing and, and in tech uh, and also had this legacy as, um, you know, had seen his family business in South Korea, LG and LS. And so, and then Joe obviously had this background as a, as a founder of Palantir and, a, and, and the founder of Adapar. And so I do think that Formation 8's, you know, ethos was really to, to invest in the types of businesses that, you know, that Joe had built, right? Look for those in other industries. And then, you know, the original idea was that there was going to be, you know, we were going to be able to help those companies go to market uh, over in, in Asia. And so, um, and, and that worked in, in certain cases, but also we, I think we, we realized that most Series A companies were not actually ready to do business anywhere else. They could barely do business in the United States. When we transitioned from Formation A to APC, um, that, was, that was one of the big reasons was we realized we wanted, what Joe and I wanted to do was really double, triple, quadruple down into what we had been doing, which was really finding these early stage software businesses operating in old world industries um, and, you know, back them at the earliest stage possible, and also increasingly build companies from scratch and you know leverage the unfair advantage that, that we had from you know Joe's you know pretty unbelievable kind of track record as an entrepreneur, and leverage the talent that that surrounded us with that wasn't always ready. They didn't already have a company to invest in, maybe right? Maybe we needed to kind of help organize that. That was the really the founding ethos that stayed the same through is trying to be involved in the earliest um, stage companies we can find, and also really thinking and feeling as much as entrepreneurs and as co-founders of businesses as, um, as investors. It doesn't totally mean, I mean, you got to think like an investor too. So it's that really, it's that balance. Yeah. And, and I, I do want to unpack a lot of what you just said in, in terms of the different components of actually building an ethos. And you mentioned uh, investment, I think decision-making, I think team construction, overall culture. The other thing that often comes up with any firm, especially as you have some level of durability and longevity, is inflection points. And early on, you had this inflection point where you raised two funds under the Formation 8 brand. And then ultimately, I think the partners, including yourself and Joe, decided, hey, we really want to focus on this core of early stage, which might have diverged a little bit from maybe via the core thesis of some of the other partners. And that can be tough in many ways. It also produces, you know, in many cases, great opportunities. Tell us a little bit about just even from an LP perspective, as you're going through this pivot in the organizational history, I think it was like three or four years in, tell us how that was. And what were the key things that you had to do as part of this new branding to get LPs comfortable? And then ultimately, talk a little bit about how you thought about the business versus maybe, you know, three years prior when you started Formation 8. Well, first off, I think we were very fortunate to have limited partners who, you know, were, were long-term oriented and that realized that, um, you know, that, that we're able to see for the reality of what was happening, which was, hey, listen, you know, this is, this is better for everyone involved here. This isn't like some, you know, implosion or disaster. This is, this is like, this is what needs to happen. And these are people who are making a really hard dis decision, right? And a decision that, to be honest, many people wouldn't, I don't think, have the courage to make to actually do the hard work of separating out and, and, you know, all of us going to do our own things. And I think, you know, everyone who 
was that it's not, and it, it wasn't just Brian who went and, you know, he's, he's done his thing formation group and Jim who's built builders VC. I mean, it, there's a lot of other things that came out of that too. I mean, it's kind of been a really interesting network. So you had, you had Lior and Seth Winteroff, um, and Pierre Lamont leave and start Eclipse, which has been incredibly successful. And, um, I just, you know, really enjoy spending time with, with them still. Um, you had Han Shen go to iFly. And so there's been a real kind of a, a proliferation of folks who, who went to do their own thing. And so first off, I just would say that our limited partners were incredible for kind of seeing that for more than, you know, it being some sort of, oh, this is a bad thing. And really it is a difficult thing, but long-term, this is going to be a great thing. So I think that's one. I think second is we were lucky. We had had, um, we had already had a, a sort of an anomalous level of exits. So we had, in our first fund, we had, we had backed Oculus and Relate IQ early. And those businesses had 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 sold, so we had returned. You know, I think about half the fund already. And so I think part of that we, 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 we there was a, you know, there was some success already um, to to kind of point to. And then I think the other thing I'll say is Joe approaches like venture capital the same way that he approached that he approached building companies, and the, the way that many founders approach building companies, which is a little different. So. Our first fund, for instance, is 448 million. It was, it was, it was really large. It was a, well, I think it was the first, the, the biggest first time fund since the tech crash or something. I don't know if that's true or not. But that's what they said, at least at the time. But that, but that, you know, that fund had hundreds of investors in it. And there was a, you know, big, big checks that um, had come from um, South Korea. And so the actual dollar value per investor was very small. Um, we're talking like, you know, in the low seven figures. And a lot of VCs would have just said no. They said, well, our minimum is five million, so you know, whatever. And Joe's approach, well, I didn't realize how different it was, but Joe's approach was like, oh yeah, you want to put in $500,000 in one meeting? Like, let's, you know, I'll, I'll take it and I'll prove it and you can put more on the next one. Um, and that approach of like, there's scarcity in the world. You need to like move things forward the same way, you know, when you're starting a company, you don't say, well, sorry, you know, our, our minimum ACV is uh, 10 million. So, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to work. I mean, you never do that. It's like, oh yeah, do a pilot. Like, let me prove it to you. Let's see the product. And that was very much the mentality that Joe took to building, you know, the investing business early on. It's just kind of what was natural for him. And we learned that. And so I think we also had probably a higher pain tolerance, and also just, you know, to some extent, a, a willingness to work with limited partners that was a little bit wider than maybe the, the, the normal universe. And so that's, you know, that's, I think, how that transition played out. And your second point, which I think is really important, is around when that happens and you're able to do that, it's actually a huge, you have to view that as a, um, an opportunity, a huge opportunity. It have to, you have to be grateful for it because You've learned so much through that. You get to do something that, you know, is, is difficult and, and you're very fortunate to be able to, to make that transition, be both because, you know, you have good returns and because you have great limited partners to help you through it. You need to learn from and, and optimize, right, based off all this experience you had, because a lot of people don't have that. And so we, we really went inward and, and crafted what I think was basically, from a first principles perspective, the exact culture, the incentives, the vocabulary, the branding, um, that we, that we wanted. Um, and that was like, I, I think just this incredibly, it really was an inflection point and it really was like an incredible experience to go through and really made us feel like we did get to honestly start over. Cause it wasn't like, it was like, 
you know, but, it, but build on what we had what we had learned. Yeah, and and you sort of mentioned a couple of things that I think are pretty fascinating. I mean, the first is the easy thing to do actually would have been just to stick together as a group, and most actually venture funds do that. And within the walls, they actually are diverging quite dramatically when it comes to individual focus. And then you have this disjointed partnership that over time provides decaying returns. And it was interesting at the time because I I was with you guys when you went through it. And I and I do remember thinking, hey, this is actually a really hard thing to do, but it's probably going to come at the benefit of everyone involved, the partners, your limited partners, which you had a lot of limited partners in Fund One. And even more so, I mean, you had done so well with Fund One, not only with companies like Oculus and Related IQ, but also Wish, ultimately, you know, very, very large exit company. As you started to think about all of these components of creating what you wanted to do with 8VC, one of the things that sometimes is a struggle for a lot of firms is when you have one founder or one founding GP that has such a reputation, a brand, so many accolades, and creating an actual partnership. You know, with Joe coming with the Palantir, Adapar, Clarium background, how did you think about actually creating a firm versus effectively a, a solo GP fund? Well, I think the first, the first thing is that you kind of have to embrace the realities of who you are, right? And so, and, and also you have to realize like, yes, when you have a very strong central uh, personality, there's complexity prevented by that. But the other thing is everyone who doesn't have that wishes they did. And that's the reality. It's like, if, you know, no one, no one who, who doesn't have a Joe or a Mark Andreessen or a, you know, Peter Thiel or a Hamas or whoever, right? David Sachs. Yeah, David Sachs. Like, exactly. No one's like, oh, I wouldn't want that. Now, it's, be, and it's because there's so much gravity around Joe uh, that is for deal flow, for references, for sourcing, for advisors, for everything. Um, that it's just, it's really powerful. Now, the flip side of it is that you, you need a couple of things. One is you need a group of people who are very comfortable with what they have and what they bring to the table, uh, in a way so that they aren't threatened by the, uh, name recognition, the star power, the attention that someone who's a very prominent and well-known entrepreneur brings. Um, and the second thing is you need that person who's the star to realize that they aren't the be all end all either. And that uh, if they want to go to a solo GP fund, they can go do one, but uh, it's probably not going to be as successful. And, you know, Joe has an unbelievable ability to effective. I mean, just like almost it's, it's not even it's like an innate ability to gather talent and resources and empower them. I mean, I started working from when I was 21. I didn't know anything really. And um and he's done that dozens, if not hundreds of times when it comes to backing companies, backing people, whatever. And he's, he's, he's just very comfortable with that. It, it's actually, it's been incredibly simple, actually, because he, he identifies talent in people and he wants to delegate where he sees that they have um, comparative advantage. And so we've built our firm to amplify the strengths of Joe, but actually not just him, but everyone at the firm. And we care less about uh, trying to either mimic other people's strengths or cover, you know, all of our weaknesses, right? We cover our weaknesses through other people's strengths. It's, it's, we, when you have a natural 
sort of leader, right, or a natural um, sort of, you know, fulcrum. It's actually sim much simpler to build a skills and functional sort of talent-based organizational model as opposed to building sort of a more uniform copy-paste model, which is how a lot of partnerships work. And it's, it, you can see, you know, it's like if you have a CEO, it becomes very easy to figure out who else you need. Well, we got a CEO, we need a CTO, we need a head of sales, we need, you know, some engineers here, we need some salespeople here, right? By having that and embracing it, not only do you get the, 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 the benefits of it, which in today's kind of modern venture capital ecosystem, a, a, a very successful founder is, a, is an incredible asset. But the second thing is you get this simplifying um, sort of organizational structure, which looks more like a company. And so we've hired, we've been able to hire in a way that most venture funds couldn't because if someone's incredibly good at sourcing or someone's incredibly good at diligence or someone has, um, you know, one really sort of clean domain expertise that we need, we can hire them and they don't have to be able to do all the other stuff. And we think that that's been unbelievably, it, it's a it's a big abstraction force, we feel, in our business. I like to analogize a lot. And one of the analogies that I would draw is very similar to a sports team. You may have a star quarterback, but ultimately the best teams have multiple team captains that bring something unique to the table that's very specific to creating success for that particular team. What struck me about how you guys have grown is you have multiple people. It's not just yourself or it's not just Joe, but it's this entire ecosystem of people that you brought that do different things that all act as team captains. But can you maybe touch specifically on things that are necessary to do, whether it's how you construct decision making at the IC level or things that you do from a cultural standpoint, from a hiring perspective to really create that type of long-term team-first team approach? Yeah, I mean, the first thing you got to do is you got to set the right financial incentives and, and, um, and not just financial, but right cultural incentives, right? So if I get paid more, if my deal works, right, my deal, whatever that means, yeah. um, then I'm going to do, my, I'm a crea I have created what I like to call a side game. I'm now playing a side game. We're playing a game which is trying to make the most money for our limited partners and therefore for, you know, the general partnership ourselves. But now I'm playing a side game. My side game is I want to have the most companies that are deemed to be my deal that are a returning capital because my side game rewards me. And this is especially true for folks who maybe, maybe they don't own the biggest percentage of the overall profit interest, right? So folks who are trying to get, and, may, and then maybe on the other side, you have people who also are trying to get promoted. So I both make a disproportionate amount of dollars from an absolute sense on my deal. And I also um, get credit for it as it relates to my promotion. So now I'm basically all in incentivized on trying to do quote unquote, my deals. And that leads to a lot of stuff. It leads to horse trading. Okay, well, you better not vote against my deal. I won't vote against your deal type thing, which is obviously terrible. It leads to um, weird incentives on non-collaboration. Yeah, I know my partner is really good friends with this founder's best friend, but I'm not gonna triangulate through them because then it's not my deal. Conversations around my deal, as you can probably tell uh, from me saying it so much, they are, th those are the only conversations which are inappropriate at APC. <laughs> so th that is not how we talk. 
the second I hear someone talking about my deal, I'm yelling at them about it. And and people, yeah, it becomes a meme. Like I, you know, I, I, there there's some function in saying it's my deal because you know I'm responsible for. It. We, we but but what we have at ABC is we have responsibilities. So I might be responsible for this company. It might be the DRI for this company. It might be I'm responsible for the board seat. It might be responsible for doing diligence on this. It might be responsible for going to source more deals. But they're not mine. They're eight VCs companies. Um, and it's super important. Uh, so first off, get the incentives of alignment so that it doesn't matter whether it's a company that I'm on the board of, whether I sourced it first or I did diligence or whatever. We I'm making this the same percentage on that as a company that maybe I don't even know the founder's first name, right? That's how you get leverage. You get leverage as you build a platform. Because if I don't, if I if I'm excited when you do a deal that I barely could, you know, talk to you about what it does. Now, hopefully we're small enough to come, we still know what most of these deals do. But as we've moved into other spaces, right? As we've gone from doing just mostly software and tech-enabled businesses to doing what we call bio-IT, which is, you know, therapeutics, diagnostics, and and you know, infrastructure and tools for life science. As we started to do more infrastructure, infrastructure network uh, software and, and businesses that kind of live below the application layer. And as we've done more health services, we can't know everything about everything. Uh, so that level of abstraction is really important. So I think first you get the financial incentives. The second is, and very related, but distinct, the cultural incentives and vocabulary. Again, why do I keep saying this is because the vocabulary is so important, right? Maybe people, the financial incentives, especially in venture, they pay off over long periods of time, right? And so if people perceive cultural value uh, in the short run, sometimes cultural values can actually... Um, you know, either counteract or or potentially totally imbalance against the financial ones because those are the longer term. So if people are always talking about my deal or I source this or you source this or whatever, you know, you, you got to beat that out. And you gotta, it can't can't be talked about that way even. It's especially true as you bring new people into the organization. And so, you know, th those two things, I think, get you a lot of the way there. And then, um, you know, the, the last thing, and this will be a sh shameless plug, but I think you need to have the right technology, infrastructure, and the right processes, right? So we started a company a long time ago, which I know you know, called Affinity. Started when I was just chief of staff, actually, because I probably was too lazy to run network management the way that we needed to run it uh, manually. And so we helped uh, co-found a company with uh, Ray and, Sh and Shuby to, to, to build Affinity. It's now used by thousands of other firms across investing, but also operational businesses. And that helps us manage our network, which is really the lifeblood of a venture capital fund in a collaborative way. And there are still firms that, will co that come to us sometimes that, you know, affinity, and they'll say, well, you know, I really wanted this for my team, but I don't want it for the whole company. That's a good sign that you have a cultural problem. If you don't want to use affinity because, uh, you know, you're worried that your partner might be spying on you, uh, that's a real problem. And there, there's a lot of process and a lot of um, you know, products and other stuff we use to to basically enable the 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 model with which we have, um, and we're constantly investing in them all the time. I'm old enough to remember a time where the default culture with many firms was very much around personal attribution, which led to often very toxic cultures where everyone was more focused on their own deals versus uh, the underlying fund returns and not to be voted on off the island. That led to these returns that over time decayed, partnership views that were diverging, and even worse, you know, key talent leaving and creating a situation where many of these firms never were able to execute on generational succession. 
And in today's world, of course, we've seen so many people leave firms to start their own funds. Maybe that's changing a little bit with the market right now, but certainly the last five, 10 years have been so much easier to start a firm. What I'm curious about hearing from you is not only the talent that you've acquired, but really the retaining of those key members as part of the ongoing evolution of the firm. How do you, outside of financial incentives, continue to retain these people? Yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a huge it's a huge thing we think about, and we've you know, knock on wood, been very lucky that we've you know mostly kept um, kept talent. And I think the biggest thing you got to do is one, you need to realize that the talent uh, that you have that technically works for you or whatever is uh, I, I, ideally, if you're good at hiring, they're probably smarter than you, probably just as ambitious, and also over time, especially if you treat talent correctly. They're going to um, they're going to have they're going to develop their own reputation and brand, which sort of is related to yours but distinct. You need to embrace that, and I think by embracing it, um, it kind of naturally leads to two things. One, you you become slightly paranoid about losing talent, and it forces you to think about the timeline and progression that people that people are on and what they want. Um, and so I think that, you know, we've, we've generally promoted very quickly, uh, Francisco who, who runs our, our biotech program, I think he went from intern to, you know, a partner running our, our bio IT, uh, program, you know, probably I think within five years. Um, and you know, that's pretty exceptional timing and he's an exceptional person. So it, that's just how it has to happen. Right. Um, and the second thing is you have to be more holistic with the way that you think about promotion. So it can't be just based off some of these old adages that I think are, are pretty antiquated. Like, I don't think we're the only ones who, who think this is ridiculous, but things like, oh, you, know, you got to return a fund before we're going to make you as a principal. It's like, I mean, come on. Like, that, no one has time for that. Like, that's ridiculous. And um, it, it just doesn't make sense. And you're going to lose best talent, you know, if that's the case. And, and then I think the other thing you have to do is you have to really empower people as well. So it's not just about money or promotions or titles. A lot of it has to do with, you know, our people's, ideas listened to. Um, and we have this pretty unique model. In the investing side, I think it looks like other folks where younger folks who, who are all-stars can start writing small checks pretty early on. But we have this build function as well, right? And so I think, honestly, historically, the biggest um, loss of talent that we've had has been from folks going to leave to start their own companies. And so... Well, we would never stand in the way of someone who wants to go start a company today, you know, leaving. When we really structured and built our build program, uh, it enabled folks to who have that entrepreneurial energy, which hopefully most of us do at APC, to put that to work in a way where they can still stay at APC, where they can start a company, recruit, recruit against it, and they get to see that dream lived out in the company that we that we back invest in. They're still super involved with it, but they don't leave APC to to run it most of the time. And in many ways, they may actually recruit a better founding team because of that. Because they may, they may, you know, it, it's this it's this sort of incentive to to help start something, but not necessarily have to be the person going to run it. So it imposes probably the right trade-off um, in terms of your role as a founder, which is a lot of times, you know, you might not be the best CEO of a company, but you would be the best person to help get it going. Um, and so when we've had that, I think that that's helped us broaden the experience that, um, you know, that folks get at APC. 
And I think that's uh, a huge part of our talent retention. And you've touched on this build program, which is, you know, starting companies and, you know, of course, Affinity, which is the one that you were involved in, of course, has done well. And appreciate the plug. We, we're actually an Affinity user as well. So <laughs> yes. as a company, it's a great service. But beyond that, I, you know, I look at the evolution of the firm throughout the last 10 years, and it's hard to believe that it's been a, a effectively a decade since you guys all all started this. And a few things have changed, right? So the size of the team, the size of the AUM, which is north of three, $3 billion today, multiple products, you have your opportunity fund, you have your main fund. Within that, you have sub themes like build. Tell us just more strategically, how have you thought about this evolution in respect to what's happened more broadly within the venture market, which of course, over the last 10 years, We've seen the growth of the number of U.S. venture firms rise up. The numbers are a little hard to track, but almost 4,000 active U.S. firms. You've seen the mega funds get more mega and larger and larger. You are now growing into that. How do you think about competitive positioning? And where do all these different products that you're launching really fit into sort of this greater path that you want to fit into? We made a pretty conscious decision to focus on build over focusing on what I would call like later stage, whatever that means, but call it, you know, after series B or C. I'll tell you like that was, it wasn't a super obvious decision in the moment necessarily. It was driven primarily by passion and where the passion was placed that we had and where we would, what in the sort of Coke industries, MBM framework, I would call our capability which is really, it's really comparative advantage. So where do we have a comparative advantage that is not dependent on one person? And our capabilities lied more on building. Um, and, you know, we've done a couple dozen companies now that we've sort of originated from scratch and um, feel pretty confident that we'll, you know, either return in all our funds or, or make a big, you know, big dent in each one of our funds from companies that we started. Our entry valuations are generally about half for that and the and and the return profile of those is 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 double. So the effect is is pretty pretty meaningful. Um and it's also something that's in our control. Uh and it fits very well with the backgrounds of many of the people that we're involved with. And we think it also creates a flywheel culturally for helping do early stage investments. So but it was a real it, you know it was I could have seen it gone the other way. And what I would say is Venture capital is 100% bifurcating. The funds that have the, I think, the, the tenacity, the wherewithal, the track record, and the right leadership are already building the next massive asset management platforms. Um, you've seen, I mean, you see this both structurally and through AUM. So what Andreessen, Sequoia, General Catalyst, you know, et cetera, are doing is unbelievably impressive it is it's deserved based off what they've what they've done and it's sophisticated in the way that they're structuring themselves the way that they're working with limited partners the way that they're building infrastructure and i have tons of respect for it because you know they're entrepreneurs too and they're building businesses and they're building really big businesses and the way as an investor you build a great business is you either put up unbelievably high returns uh, consistently, or you 
you provide as many, you provide a bunch of incredible product product breadth with good to great returns. And you look at the heroes I talked about early on about people who built private equity, you can see what it, what excellence looks like. Those people are incredible entrepreneurs. I think the same thing's happening with venture capital right now. I have tons of respect for the folks who, who have gone down the path of, of building these large platforms and raising, you know, amounts of money that like, you know, were unfathomable in venture capital, even just five years ago, we decided to focus to do the opposite and focus on the early stage. And it, it doesn't mean we want to be like a boutique, you know, oh, there's just kind of five of us in a room and we're, make, we're making the best, picking the best product and we're putting in $3 million. That doesn't mean that. I mean, you, we want to build the best early stage investing firm globally. It just means that the type of risk that we want to do, we want it to be the early stage. And it means we need to be able to build companies. It means we need to be able to invest in not just the United States or first, not just on the coasts, but across the United States and then take that and scale that globally. Um, it needs, means we need to be able to have like infrastructure and services that are specifically related to helping the early stage. It also needs, means we need an economic model with our limited partners and also, you know, with the rest of the ecosystem where we can be collaborative with the best later stage firms uh, and invest in those relationships. And so I think that you're going to see venture capital kind of go through this bifurcation, whether we call, you know, if in recent Horowitz, a venture capital fund when they're managing $600 billion or whatever, I don't know. That's like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me, but everyone knows the difference between an Andreessen Horowitz and a Blackstone. And I think pretty soon people will know the difference between an APC and an Andreessen, just given the scale of what I think they're, they're going to build. Yeah. And, and I think we're all already seeing that at inaction. And of course, it's not just the Andreessen's and the Lightspeed's and the Sequoia's. It's also the fairly new prominent entrants, the D1's, the Tigers, the Co2's, which you know, in many cases are going earlier and earlier. But if you look at where most of the capital is deployed, it's typically at the later stages, given the size and scale of those of, of those funds. And often and we've seen this in other industries, we've seen this in private equity, we've seen this in hedge. And over time, the risk return is different for those type of products versus a core early stage. And I'd probably make the argument it's even trifurcated into late stage, you know, folks like yourself that are early stage, but have some scale. And then you have on the on the left side of the vector, really small seed firms that are you know raising anywhere between twenty and a hundred million, or even sometimes less, that are coming in at the extreme early stage, where the alpha might be highest from a cash on cash standpoint, but much more volatility and returns fund after fund. And so, I think it's a unique point in the uh, the venture industry. But where you fit in, early stage Series A. We've talked about comparative advantages, um, and you've mentioned that a couple of times, and I agree with it. What do you think is the biggest comparative advantage in early stage fund today, given who your customer is, which are these entrepreneurs? If you were to even force rank the top two or three things, what do you need to have? I think the first thing you need to have is you need to have a, an actual tolerance for this, for the, what it means to do the early stage, right? I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things that is actually misunderstood, um, but actually some of the most sophisticated limited partners understand, which is like, it's incredibly messy. It's incredibly chaotic. It is unscalable, um, you know, at least in the way that, you know, the asset management world thinks about scale. And so you got to live in it, right? It's like, do you, do you, do you live in the, you know, in the trenches or do you not? 
right? And it's just a different way of living. So first off, you just gotta you, you either live in it or you don't, right? And if you're a tourist in the in the the muck, you know, you're not gonna like it long term. But you know, I don't know what likes the ducks love to live in the muck. I don't know. It rhymed. But but uh I think that's one. And it's 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 probably one of the most important things. I think the second thing is a lot of it has to do with do you have a culture which matches the entrepreneurs you're trying to serve? And I actually think that this is a place where it's not like a one size fits all. I think there are certain entrepreneurs that want a certain type of, want different types of cultures, right? And I think you can see this with, uh, prime example, I mean, using two firms I have huge respect for. I mean, Founders Fund and Sequoia. The experience as an entrepreneur between those two could not be more different. Um, And they're both incredible firms. And they do self-select for, for fairly different types of people um, or different types of founders. It, I'm sure there's there's plenty of examples of overlap, but um, I think anyone in our industry would understand that there's a there's a cultural difference. And I and I think you, what is important is having a strong culture and strong brand that you communicate and articulate well. And that's what we think a lot about. How can we do better? How can we do better at, Mar- at, at explaining what APC is? How can we do better at, about explaining why why we still build companies um, and we invest in companies? And why that's actually incredible for our founders. It's not, um, you know, it's not distracting, right, or whatever. Then I think, you know, the, the last thing is talent and having as many ways to sort of like grab hold the talent, track where it's going. Um, obviously, companies love when you can help place talent into their companies for sure. But the reality is like that's uh, that's there's only one facet of it. The other facet of it is can you, you know, convince someone to come leave a company and either and start a new company with our build program, or, you know, they don't want to, they already have an idea, but they just need some conjoin. Can we offer them, you know, some money to just get them out? So it's about like following where talent is obsessing over it. What are they, what are interesting, what are the smartest people interested in, right? What are the people who don't, you know, who don't, you know, go to fancy parties on the weekend? What are they doing on the weekend? Right. And staying rooted in that. It's a huge thing as you become more successful, you just stop hanging around with the people who actually are doing the most interesting things. It's a huge thing that we try to fight all the time, which is like, you know, how can we make sure that we're still around the, you know, super smart kind of, you know, the beautiful weirdos of the world who are like coming up with the next big thing and not, you know, at, you know, some sort of gala for something. And so, you know, it's one of the reasons we moved to Austin. We just felt like that it was, it was a place where people were moving who were really interested in building and who wanted, you know, who were interested in um, maybe a little bit less consensus thinking and also a lot of founders who were going to do the second company. And they said, Hey, listen, you know, I needed to be in San Francisco for the first one. I got my network built now. I'm going to move to Austin. Um, maybe, maybe I'm going to start a family. Maybe I just want lower costs. I'm going to start my next company there. So anyway, I, you know, I think that's what, I think that's kind of what you have to do. And there's, there's no silver, silver bullet on any of this stuff. It's just like a daily repeated sort of honestly lifestyle that you have to just live. Totally agree. And in what I would extract out of that too, it, you mentioned a number of firms like Founders and I put someone like Kosla Ventures is an extreme self-awareness of the identity of the firm and a clear point of view that can be articulated to the broader market where you create a self-selection for the type of entrepreneurs that are going to best align. And, and, I, and I, I do think the best firms are incredible at doing that. Don't have to do every deal. Don't have to be in front of every entrepreneur. But the ones that fit your overall value system, your ethos are the ones you find. And so that's great. So I want I want to end with you know just a question for you, which is you've been working with so many great 
entrepreneurs, you've worked with, of course, the, the people at your firm. But what's the most impactful piece of investment advice that you've ever received that informs you in your day to day? I'll give two because they kind of counter kind of balance each other in, a, in an interesting way. The first is that, and this is, it's, I can attribute to one person, but it's been said, which is basically that, and, and Joe and I always remind us uh, of folks, especially folks who come in product and engineering, which the first one is that ultimately a business trades at a multiple because it generates cash flow. And if your cash flows grow faster, are more defensible, if they increase on a marginal basis over time, you have operating leverage. Um, and if there you know, are, are large moats around your cash flows, you're going to trade at higher, higher multiple. That's why SaaS trades a great multiple. But guess what? It's also why industrial vertically integrated real estate like Prologis trades at the same multiple. And it's not because of pixie dust or any of this other stuff. It, it, it's fundamental to cash flow. The flip side of that was, and again, I won't attribute who said it, but an incredibly successful person once told me that I was talking about, you know, how I was sort of at the time I was a little jaded with, you know, founders who were over-promising, under-delivering, talking about all this stuff and, you know, all these examples. And the person who is a very, not a venture capital investor, very fundamental, successful investor, kind of someone who you would think would be talking about the cash flows said, basically said, listen, you could name the top three or four founders, you know, founder Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, et cetera. And at some point along the way, if you viewed the world the way that most traditional investors, most private equity investors, most lawyers would view the world, they were way over their skis in what they were promising. They would be, you know, locked up. That's, that's what his terminology was whether that was hyperbolic or not. And he's like, but guess what? He's like, they, they, they weren't lying. They were explaining what, how the future was going to work. And he was like, so you just got to keep that in mind. And then he walked off. And I was like, geez, I never expected him to say that. I figured he was going to say, you know, whatever. Like, yeah, you're right. These founders are out of control. And so the dichotomy between the two, you know, one being this focus on cash flows and the fact that Joe always says it, who in many ways is like pure entrepreneur, right? And then this other flip side, which is this really fundamental investor reminding me like the real visionaries, right? It takes a while for the vision to become obvious through dollars and cents or through, you know, metrics or through whatever. They see this world, which is going to happen, but it, it just hasn't quite happened yet. I always try to keep those, that dichotomy in my, my head when I'm thinking about investing. I, one is, you know, just because multiples are 50 times now, probably doesn't mean they're going to be 50 times later. Um, so I wouldn't, we try to never underwrite an investment based off multiples. It's all needs to be based off performance and then the flip side and vision, which is the flip side, which is, you know, someone's telling you something and they're really, really smart and they're dedicating 120 hours a week to it. And there's someone that you would, you would go work for normally. And, but you're like, wow, why are they saying this? It's crazy. Or are they just blowing smoke? You got to remember, like, they just may see the world a few years before you do. And, uh, and that's when, you know, I think you, you gotta, you gotta believe. Those are definitely interesting views and in some ways can be construed as somewhat conflicting. And, you know, it does take some skill to look at those uniquely and you create your own rubric of how do you think about employing them when you think about your career or investing. 
Drew, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you being on the show here. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Drew. To learn more about him or 8VC, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.